Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 24. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the, excuse me, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today so thankful, O oh God, that you have given us your word. And Lord, I know we pray every Sunday and ask for you to speak to us. But Lord, it, we could hear your word a million times. And yet, if your spirit is not working in our hearts to receive these things, it could be just like water off a duck's back. And so we pray, Lord, though, this morning that we would have hearts to receive your word as we read of in Mark 4. Uh, Lord, uh, a heart that would receive your word, that it would take root and grow in us and bear fruit. Lord, may we do, we pray that this morning for our sake and, and more so, Lord, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hear a lot of our uh, talk today in our country about our rights. A lot more about our rights than, I think, than about our responsibilities and I'm not surprised because, in one sense, we are one nation under God, endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there is a danger if you stress your rights above your responsibilities. You can come, in many ways, with sort of an entitled attitude, uh, as if you were owed certain things. And, and no matter what the cost, I mean, you think about it, women uh, who ought now think that they have a right over their own bodies, even at the cost of taking the life of, of their unborn child. Well, among those rights that we have is the right to speak freely, the right to assemble freely, and to worship freely. And, and hopefully, you're thankful and grateful to God for those things. So we could assemble this morning without the fear of someone breaking in and destroying our meeting, but that we could come and we could worship the Lord this morning. But, but I do sense in our country an increasing entitled attitude amongst our citizens that we feel that America owns us, owes us certain things. And, and even amongst Christians sometimes, it, it sort of carries over, and even Christians can sometimes think that God owes us certain things. But when we read the Bible, we see quite a different picture. Uh, we realize that the only thing that God owes us as sinners is death and judgment. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is what? Kids, you know this, death. 
right? Or it is appointed for man to die, and after that, the judgment. And so the only thing God owes us by nature is death and judgment. Now, I begin this morning not to have a political sermon or, or patriotic sermon or anything like that, but I want us to uh, look at this because the woman in our text becomes before Jesus, and Jesus deals with her in a decidedly unmodern way. And some of the things that we may read in our text today, we may even think, really, Jesus? That's really harsh. I, I, I don't understand that because it's way different. But before we look at our text, I want to just be reminded of the context of what we talked about last week. Mark's been dealing with the whole topic of clean and unclean. And, and the term clean in the Old Testament is really a technical word. It, it describes something that is clean enough to come into the presence of God, or so unclean that it is not worthy to come into the presence of God. And, and the point of all the great ceremonies of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the washings, the sacrifices, the sprinkling of blood, all of that is to show us that clean is precisely what you and I are not by nature. We are not clean. We cannot naturally come before God. None of us are clean enough to come into God's presence. Before we come into the presence of God, we must be washed. We must be cleansed. And of course, all the things... Uh, of the Old Testament ceremonies point forward to the coming of Jesus, who is our great high priest. He is the one who stands between us and God. He is the one who represents us before God. But we also, if you remember from our study in Hebrews, we also saw that Jesus was the sacrifice that made it possible for us to come before God and that his righteousness would become ours and take the place of our polluted nature before God, that God would treat Jesus as us on the cross and treat us as Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God. But as we look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, they didn't think that the Old Testament ceremonies necessarily pointed forward to the Messiah. Instead, these things became an end in themselves for these religious leaders. The Pharisees thought they could keep all the rules and make themselves clean before God. If they did everything right on the outside, that that gave them a pure heart before God. And yet, Jesus addresses that in, in our previous passage and said, no, it's not what's on the outside that makes you clean, but it's what's on the inside. But, you know, people still make that mistake today. Um, you know, some church people today think that they can keep all the rules if they just come to church, if they just give financially to the Lord, if they just live a moral life, then they will be clean and, and right before God and they'll go to heaven and so everything's okay. Well, the Pharisees thought that and, and, and they eventually, though, began to lose sight even of God's law and began to focus on their own laws. And, and the problem is, is as we focus on our own commandments rather than we oftentimes have a tendency to take our eyes off the Lord's commandments. It's in this context that, that Mark brings in this story of the Syrophoenician woman. You know, uh, she is as different as different can be from the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, uh, so pure and so near to God, at least in their own eyes they were, and yet here's this woman so far, far, far away from God. And so I want us to look at the text this morning, and I want us to look at four R's. 
okay? First of all, the request of this woman, her request of faith. Uh, second of all, Christ's rebuttal. Uh, third, the woman's response. And finally, the reward of faith that we see. So let's look at these four things this morning. First of all, the request of faith. Look at verses 24 through 26. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now I want us to notice several things about her request as she comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I want us to notice that she comes boldly. We see that in verse 25, you know? Uh, she was sort of, we have to understand, she was defying the conventions of that day. First of all, she was a Gentile, you know? She was coming to Jesus, this rabbi, and yet she was a Gentile. Now, Jesus had traveled up to the territory of Tyre and Sidon, which is, what, 20 to 40 miles uh, south, or excuse me, northwest of Capernaum. Uh, so he was uh, um, in a whole different uh, territory than he had been ministering. He had been ministering around the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at verse 24, you see that Jesus leaves Galilee and he heads up to this area. And these cities were outside of Israel. This was a, the only time that Jesus traveled outside of, of Israel and into a part of a pagan Gentile nation. And it is said that Jesus wanted to remain hidden there, but he couldn't. He, he was probably, I'm guessing, trying to get some R&R. If you remember uh, when Jesus took his disciples and he traveled across the Sea of Galilee the last time, he ended up feeding 5,000 people. But his intention, the scriptures tell us, was to take his disciples so that they could get away and get a break. And then we've seen several things that have happened since then, and there's no rest. So he still hasn't gotten that R&R. &R. So it could be most likely that that's the case. But that was not to be. Um, because verse 24 tells us that he could not be hidden. Now, you might ask, well, he's in a pagan nation though. How would they know who Jesus was? Well, if you recall back to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, uh, Jesus was ministering and large crowds were around him. Well, if you read that text carefully, you'll see that there were people who came down to Galilee from Tyre and Sidon, and they listened to Jesus, and they heard, and surely they went back, and they told the people in their cities about this great rabbi who preached in an amazing way and did these miraculous acts to, to, to show uh, that he was from God. And so despite Jesus' efforts to get away and to remain anonymous, even in a pagan country, that was not possible, even amongst the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I want you to understand that these weren't just Gentile cities, okay? These were cities, uh, at their, as you look at their biblical history, that had developed a very bad name for themselves. They had a very bad reputation as wicked and pagan cities. Let me give you uh, two examples of, of the wickedness that we see in these regions. One was in the Old Testament when the evil queen Jezebel, we all remember Jezebel and, and just her, her hard-heartedness, her wickedness of heart as she uh, reigned with her husband, 
Uh, and uh, she was from Sidon, and she brought the worship of the false god Baal into the land of Israel. And then, from the prophet Joel, uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon sold Jews into slavery to the Greeks. And so, uh, it's no wonder why we see various prophets in the Old Testament prophesying against these two coastal cities. Just to show you how infamous they had become in terms of their wickedness, let me share with you what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Luke 10, 13. Jesus is speaking actually against two Jewish cities. Okay? But this is what he says to these two Jewish cities. He says to them, If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. You see, he says, you guys are sort of that mark, uh, these two cities are the mark of wickedness. And, and as wicked and evil and pagan cities as they are, if they had received the grace that you had received and the message and the things that have been preached to them that have been preached to you, even as wicked as they are, they would have repented. And so Jesus says this to the Jews' shame, but also to show us how wicked these cities are. And it's, it's to this place that Jesus and his disciples had come. And verse 26 tells us that this woman comes to Jesus and she begins to, to persistently ask him to heal her daughter. And she keeps asking for Jesus for help and she won't take no for an answer. So first of all, she's a Gentile. That's the first unconventional thing. The other unconventional thing we see is she was a woman. And, and not only that, but she was also seeking help for her daughter, not her son. And so in, in the minds of the religious leaders, that's sort of three strikes against her. You see, a, a, a woman would not have necessarily approached a rabbi. He would not have really given her the time of day for her daughter, and especially being a Gentile. And so this is just very unusual. But Jesus wasn't like most rabbis. And actually, we see Christ valuing women, even though many times in Judaism they weren't valued as much. And so she comes in her desperation and she comes in boldness to Christ with her need. So she comes boldly to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. But she also comes believing as well. Uh, not only did she offer this bold request, but a believing request. Look at verse 26. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She was a woman who came with great desperation. She was a woman who came placing her hope and her faith in Jesus. If Jesus couldn't do this, no one else could help her. And so she looked to him uh, in brokenness. Now while she came in boldness and while she came believing, she also though came with brokenness. She came with humility. She didn't come arrogantly demanding. You know, she literally came and fell down at Jesus' feet. If you look at verse 25. She recognized that she had no standing before Jesus. She, she came humbly seeking his intervention for her daughter. Now, um, just, just to show you what a humbling experience this might have been for her, uh, look, turn over, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 15. This is Matthew's account of the same uh, story. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. And, and we see here the woman, in verse 22, crying out to Jesus, just like we've seen here in, in Matthew. But verse 23 in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus just totally ignores her. And, and not only that, but in that same verse, we see that the disciples begin to beg Jesus to send her away. 
because she's bothering them. She's so persistent. She's so bold. She's so much looking to Jesus to answer that they, they, they just want to send her away. And, and then finally in verse 24 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus refutes her, as he does here in Mark's account, as we'll see here in a minute. And yet, the woman pleads with Jesus. She continues to pursue him. And so she was desperate, and she recognizes her need. So we, we see this request of faith from this woman. But then we see, if you look back over at Mark's Gospel, uh, Christ's rebuttal in verse 27. Now, the response that Jesus gives may be unexpected, to say the least. You know, we might have expected him to say something like this. Woman, great is your faith. Your daughter has been made whole. Go in peace. That's what we would have expected if we were writing this story, right? But Jesus doesn't say that. He says something that sounds actually harsh and insensitive. Uh, we read in verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. That's a response, is it not? I, I'm guessing for, for some of us that might even sound offensive. You dog! How dare you come to me? What would make you think I would give this to you? Now, this is not a compliment. You know, now, this is the way that the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They oftentimes called them dogs. Um, and you've got to understand, though, that a cute little uh, fluffy that you have at home as your pet dog, that's not you know, oftentimes what the Jews meant when they talked about Gentiles being dogs. They were talking more in a derogatory sense. In those days... There were some dogs that were pets, but most just ran around in wild packs. They, they were wild, vicious, unruly creatures. And so it was seen as a very derogatory thing. It's a lot like if two teenage girls were gossiping about another girl and they say, you know what, she's a dog. Now that, that's not a compliment, obviously. That's quite an insult. Now for, for the Jews to call a Gentile a dog, their language was much stronger than those two teenage girls, but it's still sort of that same kind of thing. So what was Jesus seeking to convey here? Was he just harsh and, and mean to her? Well, let's break down verse 27 a little bit. It says, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. Now Jesus is speaking of the Jews who were the people of Israel, oftentimes called the children of God in the Old Testament. And, and so as he's talking about the children, he's talking about his people. And so when he talks about the dogs, he's clearly referring to the Gentiles. Those were the people who were clearly outside the covenant. Um, we read in Matthew's uh, account, uh, verse 24, that when Jesus talked with the woman, he actually even said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's, it's clear that Jesus is saying that he... What he has to offer is for God's people. Now, I do want to clarify something here. Because oftentimes the word dog does mean that wild pack of animals that run around and, you know, eat carcasses and, and do all that kind of stuff. But the word that Jesus uses here for dog is actually speaking about a little dog. It's talking about a household pet who could eat the crumbs from under the table. So Jesus is saying, is it right that I give to the little dog, to the Gentiles, the meal that belongs to the children, to the Jews? Remember, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
Well, Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, he put it well when he says, Jesus' reply is, is more of a parable than a put-down. He's really not seeking to, to put the woman down. He's not trying to insult her in any way. He's really speaking in, in a parable. And in speaking this way, Jesus was really sort of testing the woman's trust in him. He was testing her faith uh, and challenging her. Did she see Jesus merely as a sort of a medicine man or a magician like so many others did that, that crowded around Jesus who just wanted to get something from Jesus? Or did she truly believe in him? And of course she gave the answer that Christ was looking for. And it revealed a mixture of a deep personal respect of Jesus, of seeing him as someone great and the firm determination of faith to enter into his privileges. In other words, her response shows that she believed in Jesus. So let, let's look at that response of the woman more closely. The response of the woman in verses 28. It says, But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, she's building on this word picture that Jesus has been using to show that salvation did first come to the Jews, but salvation uh, as it came through them, uh, from the Jews and through them, and yet still there was something for the rest of the people as well, for the Gentiles. Her, her response was extremely clever, but was also respectful to Jesus. It showed that she understood the nature of God's kingdom and that it was both for Jew and for Gentile. Much like what Paul would later write in the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16. We read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or kids. That's another word for Gentile as well. So, so the woman understood the order of salvation. Now, I know that oftentimes when we talk about the order of salvation, we're talking about the order of salutis. And that's not what I'm talking about when I use that term, order of salvation. I'm talking about the fact that salvation first came to the Jews, to God's people. And then through the Jews, it came to the nations around them. It was as if this woman was really playing off of Christ's words. If you look back at verse 27, Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed, what? First. First. Right. It's not that the dogs wouldn't be fed at all, but the children needed to be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So she acknowledges God's plan to bring salvation to the Jews first, but even at that, in her mind, there should be crumbs for the Gentiles. And she recognized that the rightful order of things did not place her first, but yet she trusted that there was something of God's mercy there for her as well. Even crumbs, as we read, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, if you read the Bible uh, regularly, uh, and even in the New Old excuse me, even in the Old Testament, you will see God showing His grace to those outside of God's people. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. In the Old Testament, Rahab, the prostitute, she was not part of God's people, and yet He showed her His grace to her and delivered her. Another very well-known example of that is Ruth as well. She was a Moabitess, 
and yet the Lord brought her into the covenant community and came to know God. Even the Gibeonites, to one extent, the Lord blessed and protected, even though they sort of deceived the children of Israel. And, and while we see these glimpses of God's grace to Gentiles throughout the Bible, we're reminded that God's covenant promise to Abraham included the nations. You know, for the Jews, they had reached that sense of entitlement like we as Americans do. You know, we're Americans. We should be entitled to these things. And that's how the Jews saw themselves, because they were God's people. But clear back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, which I want to read here in just a minute, we'll see that God's intent was to bless more than just the Jews. It was to bless the nations. Look at Genesis 2, 12, 2 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. One more, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where we read of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, uh, which is a title that is ascribed to Christ. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And we could look at Micah, we could look at Amos, we could look at Zechariah, and we would see in all of these the message of the Messiah would spread to the nations. So the response of the woman demonstrates her faith and showed to the disciples and even to all the world that the work of Christ that he came to do was not just for the Jews, but also for Gentiles as well. Are we not happy and praise God for that, brothers and sisters, that that is the case? So, so we've seen the woman's request. We've seen Jesus' unusual rebuttal that he's testing her faith, uh, showing the disciples, why he came. The woman's response that showed a surprising understanding of the plan of God's salvation to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. But finally, we see the reward of faith in verses 29 and 30. The amazing thing that happened was that her daughter was healed. She was restored. Jesus drove the demon away. The woman went home and found her daughter resting quietly, peaceful, probably for the first time in, in a long time. And at first glance, as we look at verse 29, we might think that the reason why she was uh, uh, delivered was because of what her mother said, because of her statement. Look at verse 29. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. But it's not the words that the woman spoke that restored her. It was the faith uh, that the words represented. We see that this woman's faith was genuine, and it was great. And this actually comes out a little bit more in Matthew's account than it does in Mark's account. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, uh, we read these words. 
Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So this Syrophoenician woman was a woman of great faith who trusted in Christ to help her in her greatest hour of need. Her faith was a bold faith. It was a believing faith. It was a broken, a humble faith. She was not put off by Christ's test of her faith. She had nowhere but Him to turn, no one but Him in whom to believe. And the reward of her faith was that her daughter was restored. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, what are we supposed to take away from this this morning? Well, let me suggest maybe three things to you. First of all, to recognize that salvation does, first of all, come from the Jews. They're, the Jews did have an advantage of being God's people. They had His Word. They had His law. And that's why it was so sad that so many had rejected Him. But we need to make it practice to pray for the Jewish people. Um, you know, in a sense, we owe them sort of a great debt. It's through them that salvation has, has come to us. We have been grafted in, to use the biblical language, we've been grafted into their vine. And we should pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. But second of all, I would suggest that we need to see that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's, it's for all the nations. We see it even in the Old Testament. God showing His mercy not only to Israel, but to the surrounding nations. And as we've already looked, we've seen examples of that. But Isaiah 25 also talks about that. As it talks about this great banquet that's going to be spread before all the people. We see this even in the... the uh, in, uh, we see this coming to fruition in the book of Acts. In Cornelia, the account of Cornelius, where, where Peter... He has the vision of the sheep and the animals. And God has to deal with his heart to show him that, you know, something's not unclean just, you know, uh, on the outside. That if God declares it clean, it's clean. And so then Peter needed that vision so he could go back and he could not judge the Gentiles, but he could go and he could proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's just like it reminds us from last week that, you know, clean and unclean doesn't come from outside of us. It's from what is inside of us. And so Jesus goes to Sidon and Tyre to show that this woman, which the Pharisees would have considered unclean, is a woman of great faith and believer in Jesus. And so she is clean. And this should serve as a reminder that we have a message to tell to the nations. There's, there's no one so unclean that God cannot save them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? What about the person you've been praying for for 10 years? Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, and you just now have gotten to the point where you're just like, Lord, I don't know. I don't think they're ever going to be interested in God. Let us not lose heart. Let us continue to pray for them. Let us continue to share the gospel with them. No one is so dark in their sin that Jesus cannot cleanse them with his blood. You see, God's plan of salvation is breaking into history, and we need to share that message with others as well. But also, may we see God's plan of salvation for the nations, and that God does not merely love those who are His people in the church, but His salvation is for all who believe. And so there may be those who are listening to me this morning, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning. He is opening your eyes. He's helping you to see Christ for who He is. 
to see Him in His tender mercy, to see that Jesus is one that you could come to and cry out to and ask for deliverance, and He is a God who will save you. You might uh, be tempted to think that God could never love you. You're too bad. If, if only people knew the things that you had done, and who you are. You've never really been a person who's interested in church things. And so there's all these things that Satan is sort of rehearsing in your mind. So you can't, God would never accept you. God would never love you. But here is a woman who had every right to be timid in approaching Jesus, maybe even being afraid to come to Jesus. And yet she places her faith in him. She believed he is who he claimed to be. She believed that Jesus could deliver her daughter. And so she comes to him. She comes with boldness. She came with faith and humility, knowing that there was more than enough mercy for her in Christ. If you are here this morning and the Lord is working in your heart, do you? I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus has more than enough mercy for you? He does. And He's calling you to come to Him, to trust to Him, to repent of your sins, and to believe in Him. Will you come to Him boldly, believing, broken, and humble? As we stated earlier from the book of Romans, it says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, our salvation is not dependent upon us and what we can do. It is the power of God that can make us a new creation. Finally, we have a lot to learn about this woman's faith. Are we unreservedly casting ourselves at the feet of our Savior for our needs and our petitions? Do you go to the Lord regularly? Those things that you wrestle with in your life, do you try to just sort of figure them out yourself or do you come to Him and do you cry out to Him? Maybe you're struggling with one of your kids. You know, they just don't seem to like to go to church and they're just like sort of spiritually apathetic. And, you know, you, you, they're there with all your other kids as you're having family worship and as you're walking with them, as you go out in nature and you're pointing them back to God, you're doing all that you can to proclaim the gospel to those kids. And yet their hearts are hard. You're so frustrated. As a parent, you're disheartened and you think, oh, Lord, what can I do? And I'm telling you, you can come to the feet of your Savior and you can lay these petitions before Him. Brothers and sisters, is our faith as mature as this woman? Are we so dependent upon Christ for what we need that if He were to be silent in our response to our pleas, and there are times, are they not? Do you not pray to the Lord? And there's times when you feel like there's nothing. You just hear crickets, right? The Lord doesn't seem to answer your prayer. And you're so discouraged. And you cry out to Him a second, a third, a fourth, maybe a half a dozen times and still nothing. But then eventually you're tempted just to give up. But if He were to be silent in response to your reply, or even if he were appeared to reject your request, like he did with this woman. Why should I give to the dogs the food that belongs to the children? He just seemed to outright reject her, and yet she still pursued him. Would we pursue him like that, knowing that he is the only place that we can go? He is our only hope. Much like the response of the disciples in John chapter 6, Verse 66, where Jesus taught some very difficult things to the crowds that were following him. And then we read these words in John 6, 66. Uh, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is that our attitude towards the Lord as we come to Him? If He doesn't answer our prayers, then there is no hope for us. And so we constantly just come before Him, casting ourselves at His feet, laying our pleas before Him, and trusting in Him, knowing that He is a God who hears our prayers and answers them in His way and in His time. Is that our response when God tests our faith? You know, you may be here this morning and you may feel like the Lord is very distant from you right now. And you may be very discouraged. But let me ask you, where else do you have to go? Where else do you have to turn? Do we come to Jesus believing Him with humility? Sort of like the old hymn says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's not just describing when we come to faith in Christ, but that's the walk of the Christian our whole life. Do we have the kind of faith that keeps us coming to Christ? May the Lord God continue to strengthen our faith. Let's bow our heads this morning and just have uh, a few moments of silent meditation upon these things that we have heard from God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, we are truly in some ways rebuked by the greatness of this dear woman's faith. We pray, Lord God Almighty, that you would so kindle in us such a, a faith that will not let you go. We pray for those amongst us whose hearts are, are maybe weary and even torn this morning. We pray that you would give them perseverance, give them strength, give them that sort of that stickability in, in the midst of the storm to lay hold upon you and not let you go, knowing, God, that you are a God who does not let us go. So we pray that you would cause us to grow in our faith. But, Lord, we also want to, to thank you for your great salvation and do pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of the Jews, that they would see that those that you have called as your people, that, they're, that they would see the great hope that comes in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Father, we just thank you so much. I can only imagine uh, Mark's readers uh, getting this letter, uh, Gentiles in Rome, who, who hear that and just are reminded, yes, praise Jesus, that the salvation has come to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And Lord, we come this morning and we give you great thanks. Lord, we thank you for the covenant homes that many of us have come from that we have grown up never knowing a time where we have not heard the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe even our kids, Lord, today, who are growing up in covenant homes. And we pray that they would have ears to hear 
the wonderful good news that you have, uh, you have saved your people, Jew and Gentile alike. And we thank you, God, so much for that. And we pray these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.